Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is um, part two of uh, four classes on the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, the Satipatthana Sutta is a Buddhist teaching on how we do jhana meditation. That's the first part. And then how we apply uh, and skillfully use concentration. And I, I refer the, to that as refined mindfulness. Yes, oh, is this the Anapanasati Sutta? Yes. Yes, sir. I'm getting those mixed up in my head for two weeks. This is the second class on the Anapanasati Sutta. And I'm just going to read, go back one paragraph that we touched on Tuesday. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the, to the development of the four frames of reference, or the four foundations of mindfulness. And then there's a list here. That I'm going to just read that and we'll get to them. The four right exertions, the four bases of power, the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors for awakening, and the noble eightfold path. Such are the monks in this community of monks. He's holding up these um, approximately 25 monks. And this is early in the Buddha's dispensation, so there weren't any nuns in the Sangha yet, probably within the first six months or so uh, he taught this. Um, and they all develop these qualities um, through the Eightfold Path, through the Dhamma practice. And just to reiterate what we do in meditation and then what we take off our cushion. The four foundations of mindfulness, mindful of the breath and the body, right? That's how we begin our meditation. Mindful of feelings arising and passing away. We don't get distracted by them. We just allow them to, to process. Mindful of thoughts arising and passing away, we start disconnecting our identity from our thoughts in this way, which, uh, which just leads to a distraction, doesn't it? If I'm in this moment, I've lost my concentration, lost my mind. I'm now just protecting this image that I have of the self that I want you to see. But what I don't want you to see is what's underneath this because I think there's something wrong, something lacking. I'm just not good enough, or I don't want you to see this, or whatever it might be, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of the present but impermanent quality of mind. So we learn to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states, and that sounds a little nutty at first, but what we're learning is that dukkha occurs, and not to lose our minds over it. And we do that through concentration, not through gimmicks, not through... Um, some kind of uh, other realm experience or, or somebody bestowing a gift on us because we're so wonderful. It's a consequence of developing concentration and full human maturity. And that's where we ended uh, Tuesday's class. So the four right efforts, or this is a definition of the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path of right effort. And think of this, um, I was trying to put this um, in a real life con context and I first had the thought of 
thinking about these right efforts as if you were encountering somebody who was difficult in your life. But then I thought that the most subtle aspect of eye-making, the one that's really the most difficult for us to recognize, is the internal conversation we're having with ourselves. So you can look at this in, in either way, but, but maybe think of it as you might be getting hard on yourself in certain ways. You don't think you're good enough. Again, I talked about that earlier. Um, you're just not strong enough for, the, for this occasion, or you just don't want to be bothered with that pain in the butt that's coming around the corner. Right effort is avoiding inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen. So that, that's pretty conceptual. What does it mean? It means that now that I have a little bit of concentration, I can recognize where I might be going into self-sabotage. I'm not good enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with even just a little bit of concentration and refined mindfulness, meaning knowing what to do with it specifically, um, and this really goes against the modern mindfulness movement, which is now the, uh, probably the largest religion in the world. Um, but it's never applied the way the Buddha taught mindfulness. So that's why I called it refined mindfulness. As, as an example of that might be, uh, there's a famous book that came out 10 or 15 years ago now about being mindful when you're washing the dishes and being mindful when you're doing this and doing that and doing these ordinary chores. Um, that's all mindfulness, but that should be the result of Dhamma practice and concentration, not making that your Dhamma practice, which is what most people do. So you're, it, it's almost a mindless type of mindfulness, meaning, oh, I got to be mindful of everything that's going on and you spread it out here and there. So your mind is everywhere out there because you're trying to be mindful of everything. Well, what we're learning is to be mindful of these qualities of mind that will lead to awakening. So avoiding inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen, I'm no good, or this SOB is coming around the corner. I know it's going to be, well, maybe you don't have to think that way because you've taken the internal self-sabotage and now you're, now you're sabotaging an encounter out in the world. Um, and we do that in millions of ways. And sometimes we do it in ways that are so... Um, innocuous that we shouldn't be bothered, but I don't like the way that checkout person was to me. Well, why, what kind of thought is that? And that get, leads to this, abandoning inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have arisen. So in this moment, I find that my, my, the quality of, of my mind is conflicted. What can I do at that point? I can take a breath, unite a mind in my body, and disconnect or dissociate from that thought. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And this is not escape. That's reality. Even though I might have a thought, if that thought is a fabrication and rooted in ignorance, it's not me. And if I can learn to either avoid that thought before it arises through concentration or when it arises, and, and notice that the Buddha is saying it will arise. He's saying no matter what kind of Dharma practitioner you are, this is going to occur, and when it does, what do you do? Abandon inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have arisen. Number three, the third right effort, is developing appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen. 
So what does that mean? It means I continue with my Dhamma practice because I know it's deepening my concentration. I can experience it. And now I, I can develop something that that crazy bald headed guy talks about is refined mindfulness, which is broadening the scope of concentration, isn't it? To include all of these different qualities of mind. And this can seem like a lot. In fact, I want to ask you all a question after I read this last one, if this feels like it's getting overwhelming or confusing. The fourth one, the fourth right effort, is to maintain appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds for, for the continual development of non-confusion and skillful qualities that have arisen. So that's starting to take ownership of who and what we are, which is not these things that are rooted in a fabrication, rooted in um, rooted in eye-making, which is always subject to you're not going to be good enough. You set yourself up too big. This keeps us who we are. It keeps us as human beings who, bringing it back to the Buddha's description of dukkha, birth is dukkha. Have, the consequence of having a human life is going to be stress and suffering. Don't take it personal. Don't get into inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds, because now you're just getting in, you're confusing yourself. You're almost like, and I talk about it in a few other different contexts, but it's almost like we're a magician and I'm playing this magic trick on myself. I don't realize what I actually am. The four bases of power. Now, this is what I just referred to, was what am I really, what, what qualities do I have that are, an actual part of being a human being, and they're all good things. The four bases of power. The first one is calm rooted in concentration. So we know we're, we're, we're building on that. If our minds aren't calm right now, if we're conflicted, we know what to do. And we know that this is just going to deepen. Persistence rooted in concentration. So the more well concentrated my mind is, the less distracted I am, so the more I can sit on my cushion without thinking I should be doing something else. And even more than that, off my cushion, in my moment-by-moment -moment life, I'm maintaining a calm and peaceful mind no matter what's occurring because I'm not taking what's occurring personally. I'm, do, I'm, I'm living within right effort, which is now informing a... a um, an internal broadening right view, meaning I'm not taking things as personally as I used to be. Still have work to do, probably. Um, the third base of power is right intention rooted in concentration. So the intention to recognize eye making. And of course, that takes concentration. Without concentration, I spend my life in the, in the game, in the pursuit of always eye making. And the fourth base of power is wisdom rooted in concentration. But again, this is a refined wisdom. It's wisdom developed by the framework of the Eightfold Path. It doesn't mean that you, that you can read an encyclopedia and know what's in there. That's maybe a good thing to do, depending on what you're doing in the world. But what we're learning is what it means to be a human being. And that a human being is whole and complete and does not need to explain itself. Wisdom rooted in concentration. The five faculties. So faculties are, in, in using the word in this sense, 
is referring to some internal power that we have. It's not something that we, um, that we add to ourselves. These are here because they're part of the faculty of being a human being, right? Just like there's a faculty in a school, that's where the, the, the faculty is the, um, is the power that the school has. That's where you're gonna learn something. These are the five faculties that we have. And now we start recognizing. The first one is conviction. And that relates directly to the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path, doesn't it? Right effort. It takes conviction, not faith. That's, that's an important distinction between what the Buddha taught and religions. Religions require faith because there's, there's no real result that you can experience or live in. It's all something that is always conceptual and can never really be explained. But but we don't take to the Dhamma on faith. We take to the Dhamma with conviction. Because we've taken refuge. We understand that a human being did this. He left his teachings, the Dhamma, they're still here. And we have a well-informed and well-focused Sangha that the Buddha thought was the most important part of that. We're living within that. And then enthusiastic engagement with the Dhamma. Sometimes we call that rapture, joyful engagement. And that relates to right view and right intention. How do we develop it if it's not present? <clears throat> Take some time to recognize what you're doing for yourself. You're not doing this because I said you should do it. Maybe that's how you get started. But if you're going to continue with practice, you realize that you're doing it. You're applying what you're learning, what you're putting your right effort in here on a Saturday morning. This is part of your conviction and your enthusiastic engagement with this. And I know you were all very enthusiastic as you were coming to class this morning. Right mindfulness is one of the five faculties. Makes sense. Or refined mindfulness. Again, the Buddha mentions concentration and wisdom. These are the five faculties. This is where our power is. And then the Buddha says, here's your five strengths. Again, going back to conviction in the Buddha and his Dhamma. Conscience. The Buddha doesn't talk about this often, but when we start recognizing our behavior and we see behavior that we might now classify as shameful, we have a conscience that tells us that's not the behavior that we want to continue. It's shameful. We should be ashamed of certain behaviors. And some behaviors are so egregious that you can classify them as antisocial. But any of these things that don't, any type of misconduct, unskillful things that hurt myself or others should be reflected in a conscience that I don't want to be that person anymore. And that's a key part of the Dhamma. It, at times it can seem very subtle, but when we're caught up in the moment and we recognize this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, that's your conscience working for you, isn't it? It's now becoming a well-developed conscience rooted in wisdom and concentration. The next is concern. Concern for what? Concern for the suffering that arises from misconduct. I don't want to be that way anymore. I know one of the things that I had to do, it's part of the, the 12 steps, 
that I use to recover from alcoholism and drug addiction is an important part of that. And it's, in fact, it's the most liberating aspect of the 12 steps. And I won't get into the whole explanation, but it's the ninth step where you actually go to people that you know that you've harmed and you say you're sorry. And you tell them that in such a way that you're, you, you want them to know that the reason why you're doing this is because now you're, you're engaging in a lifestyle that hopefully will not allow this behavior to come out again. And one of the things that when I talk to people or I learned it through myself, people that I'm taking through the 12 steps is don't apologize for anything until you really believe it. Because then it's just a lie, isn't it? But again, it comes back to concentration. It comes back to having a conscience about my own behavior. I don't just excuse things away or um, put it on myself that that's just who I am, that I'm a person that is rooted in conflict and just accepting it. No, that's not what a Dharma practitioner does. We gain control of our mind and we gain control of our behavior. Um, and persistence for integrating the Eightfold Path as the framework for mindfulness and for one's life. And the last, again, is wisdom or discernment, which is penetrative understanding for the arising and passing away of suffering and all phenomena. Everything is impermanent <clears throat> and nothing is a reflection of me. I can enjoy it or I can be a part of it. But as soon as I attach to something or want it to be different, I've lost my mind again. But now I know what to do. I can take a breath, unite mind and my body, remind myself what I truly am. And I can start building up these strengths and these inner qualities that are a part of me. Discernment is the ability to see things appropriately and within the appropriate context, which is also always, this is not me. It's always non-personal or impersonal. Discernment is a quality of right view. That's the end of this section of whether or the Satipatthana or the Anapanasati Sutta, one of those two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, all right, let's go online. I'd like to hear what you have to say about these classes. Uh, but also, if you recognize that you're developing these, these levels of concentration and these, maybe if you recognize these bases of power or just more of a conscience about your behavior, but not in a in a uh, a self defeating way. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for the teaching. Um, it really um, delves into our responsibility. Um, sort of in a deeper way in terms of monitoring our own behavior situationally. Um, and taking responsibility for it, but all, you know, personal accountability, but also recognizing when you're off the path and not beating yourself up about it but demonstrating the right behavior in the next moment is a possibility. 
but only if you recognize that you're off the path in that moment. Um, so very helpful, practical advice. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mary. I, I would just say what Mary said. You know, that, that's it. We don't take it personally. It also is an aspect of being gentle with ourselves, right? It's a gentle responsibility, but who is going to be responsible for my mind if it's, it's not me? If it's not me, what have I done? I said, my mind is yours. I've thrown it out into the world. Or we can reclaim it through concentration and through conscience. Thanks, mm -hmm. Mary. Good morning, <laughs> Deb. Deb, did you hear me? Sorry about Deb. that, yeah. There you are. <laughs> Thank you for the teaching. I was thinking about the breath, the breathing in to the body, breathing out of the body, and just remembering how that relates to the temporariness of all phenomena, just like you say in the book. So that was like, aha. <laughs> it is, that's an good to, essence. Good to revisit that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, recognizing that, the, the jhana meditation at its most basic application is both the experience of and metaphor for life. Life arises, and passes away. A thought arises and passes away. A feeling arises and passes away. In this moment, when we're connected to our breath, we're connected to that entire cycle of life. In that one breath is where we live. And without that, there's no life. Mm. Thanks, Deb. Uh, Tracy, good morning. Good morning, John. Uh, um, so I'm feeling a little bit emotional about today because um, while I was meditating, I um, had what I would consider to be a bit of a breakthrough in something that kind of brought me to this practice to begin with that I've been really working on very hard, probably too hard, <laughs> and just feeling very stuck, not understanding why I can't figure this thing out. And um, I had clarity for like a split second in my sit. And I, if it was like, whoa, I, you know, like I was able to detach from this thing for just a second and see it. And- um, As and something the, separate from you. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And- oh. um. I first off want to acknowledge, you know, even when you say all the time, like, oh, be gentle with yourself. Like, I don't even understand what you're saying. But once I finally saw how painful this thing has been for me, um, I immediately felt compassion for myself. Wow. Um, 
and then you went through the teaching and I was very, it was very clear um, that happened because I'm practicing correctly, even though I don't feel like maybe I'm doing it right in the moment, but I was calm, rooted in concentration. I've been persistent. You know, I was recognizing I'm making the whole 30 minutes, you know, and then wisdom came up. So I just wanted to share that. And thank you so much for being so clear about this Dhamma and helping me see. So thank Tracy, you. thank you for, for sharing that and being so honest with us. Um, continue to be very gentle with yourself because that, you know, what you did experience was a huge breakthrough. You got to, it, it, it's almost like you're able to step back from yourself and get a look at your self, but the, 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 the self that you're now looking at is, you're recognizing as a fabrication. You're seeing that it's not you. But, you know, we have a vested interest in all these um, different identities that we make. And so even though we recognize that, well, this part of my character I've seen now is hurtful, at least to myself, we still have an association with it. And it can be almost like losing a, a, a close friend when we start separating ourselves from that. And again, that's another reason why we need to be gentle with ourselves. It's almost like a mourning period that we have to go through when we're letting go of a significant behavior or even a significant significant thought that we might have been holding that we now realize is just a fabrication. It has nothing to do with you. So, and yeah, you're, you're using the Dhamma as intended. And sometimes even the Dhamma hurts, doesn't it? But you see that correctly. So... Thank you, Tracy, for Thank you so much. And again, just continue to be gentle with yourself. You know, give yourself a little bit of a vacation. You don't have to work so hard on yourself. Just, <laughs> just continue with, with Dhamma practice and, and you'll develop all of this in a very gentle and, and skillful way. So thanks, Tracy. Thank you so much. Brian, how are you? The ego is a stage five clinger. It doesn't want to go away. <laughs> I, it, it's going to cling for all it's worth. So just buckle up. It'll peaks and valleys, my friend. <laughs> yeah. um, but in the end, it's like foam on the ocean. It just goes away. It, it does. It just gradually becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And at, at some point, you, you wonder what the fuss was all about. But yeah, that's right. Um, I, I've been fascinated by the interplay between concentration and discernment yeah and one supports and nurtures the other and vice versa that you don't you don't get to discernment without concentration and you can't deepen concentration without discernment yes without and the rest of this practice. the rest of this suda really starts to speak to how to train the mind to be more discerning to where I at some point went through and made a list of, I don't know, 30 different aspects of my ego that would just pop up. And then it's like, which one of these is Brian? <laughs> it's not there, right? It's not this one. It's not that one. So it just, it helps to break down that construct in the mind uh, to see it for what it really is. And as John says, just foam on the ocean. It's impermanent. It arises, it passes away. 
And the only value it has is what you give it. Yeah. So, thank you. That's right. Thank you, Brian. That, that last line is the only value is what the value I give it. And if I remove the value from it, that judgment that I think this is me, now I can let it go and recognize again, it's like foam on the ocean. Let me see, I'm trying to think of that saying. What Kandana said when he first heard the Four Noble Truths from his friend, the Buddha. And he said, all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. And he was referring to his own mind and the conditioning in his own mind. And he recognized the impermanence and recognizing the impermanence in these things that once seemed solid, he was able to let it go. If it's impermanent, why hang on to it? There does seem to be, in this teaching, some level of judgment that the Buddha's applying to certain behaviors and certain, I don't know, it just seems like it, if the whole purpose is not to take it personal and to be sensitive to the good, the bad, and indifferent, that he is saying, He's putting judgment on certain things. Oh yeah, or or a wise discernment. You know that that's that, that's is an that a conflict with just now, accepting I... to what is arising within the framework of the Eightfold Path. So why would there be any level of weighted judgment on a behavior? Yeah, there are some it, things that work and some things that don't work. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just a practical. It's a difference between skillful and unskillful behavior, and you, there you're right that it it could seem as I'm putting a moral judgment on certain things, but that's not what we're doing. Remember, we're we're using concentration to develop a fully mature human being which means that, that that human being doesn't take anything personal. And it's these, just to use a word, it's these negative aspects of our behavior that become uh, part of our character or their own character. Equally, it would be equally a problem with the positive things of your character that you have to be careful of to be attaching to. I'm bringing up something that's really important. Thank you. I mean, it's weighted to get rid of the bad, but you're still attaching to the good, which, I don't well, know. it's it reflecting like commentary that's confusing to me a little bit. It's mm -hmm. reflecting um, the, w this, as we recognize the dross, you know, when you, when you, if you're, if you're a gold miner, you get these huge mounds of dirt and rocks and all kinds of stuff and you work it down with water and this and that you're cleaning the dross the stuff that you don't want and we're doing the same thing we're getting we created these um these characters these behaviors and in order to abandon them we first have to recognize it and this aspect of my behavior i no longer want um going back to, to recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism, I didn't stop, I didn't stop drinking or using drugs because I no longer wanted to be a bad person, but I was a bad person. 
But what I did is I eliminated certain behavior that now freed me up for other things, including practicing the Dhamma. And along the way, as my concentration increased and I was able to get um, using the four foundations of mindfulness, the four frames of reference as a reference for my own behavior, I can now see things that were no longer skillful in relation to um, a benchmark, the Eightfold Path. And so there is a moral aspect in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The implication is that there's such a thing as wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. And of course there is. So whether you look at it as a judgment Yes, that's or I've always had that issue of like how do I practice right speech, right action, right livelihood before I have concentration and oh, yeah. mindfulness. It's just some kind of crude restraint. So yes, to mm -hmm. me, it, it it's always been like those moral, virtuous aspects of the Eightfold Path are going to seem after. You can try your bestest to have good speech, but without concentration, it's oh yeah, you can do it without this practice. I mean, you can, you can have that same result without that practice, but with the concentration, then that just falls away. What else would you have but right speech? Yeah. So again, it's just like the moral, it seems it, like, what else, why is this any different than any other, any religion, but it's all based on concentration to gain wisdom. Yeah, and to no longer engage in conflicting behavior within myself, not so that I get to heaven, so that I can have a conflict-free mind. Remember, we're doing this. Really, you're we're we're not doing this to save the world, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if everybody practiced the Dhamma, you know, I think it would be a better place. But all that we're doing, and again, the Eightfold Path is a limiting path. Limits us to, us to what? To what we actually are. So there has, there has to be, and there is discernment in that, that I do not aspire to greed or aversion because my thought, my thinking is no longer diluted. Yeah, I don't do this to be good. Yeah, you know, I don't do this to avoid being. Bad. But again, but but the result is that the world would any, look at in, you in as any, a good, a better any, human being. In any rackiness stacking of a good person, kind. Yeah, you'll fall more to that. You won't be this killer who's you know have this dharma practice that can't go together. But yeah, and there's no hierarchy that we're developing. I I'm not better than you. You can see how a modern Buddhist. Uh, practice would just fall into some other all yeah all that i found is is rooted ultimately in salvation or fixing a broken self just this is person. realizing that as a consequence of having a human life there will be the buddha said birth sickness aging and death is what he began with look at what human life is it's not all wonderful it's not all positive don't keep putting that on yourself. That's a, a terrible weight to bear. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Life is what happens. It's so much more than the Ten Commandments because it's applying this practice so you have wisdom. 
and puts it in the context. So without that concentration, it's just the Ten Commandments. Yes, and and if I'm being a good person because of the Ten Commandments, I'm living in my imagination. I'm being a good boy so that I can get to heaven. Well, I've already had to put myself in a category as a bad boy. What am I doing to my thinking? I'm sabotaging myself. And so the, the Dhamma clears out all of that stuff and says, what, what are you? You're a human being. And as a human being, that's all that you can be, but it's all that you are and all that you have to be. So if other people might have expectations of you as Superman or Superwoman, but we now know I'm just a human being. I'm just, I'm just doing, you know, I'm just taking, I get one breath in the beginning, one breath at the end, and the rest of the breaths are up to me. So what am I going to make of it? Am I going to live in conflict with the world in one way or another? Which means that I'm living in, I'm conflicted with the world because I'm conflicted inside, internally. So I learned to let go of this behavior, not because... God's going to love me if I do that because it's the most loving thing I can do for myself and all others is take to the Dhamma and awaken. So you ask a really important question. So you can look at it as um, moral judgment and it really doesn't matter as long as you recognize it as something to be recognized as not you and let it go. Don't keep creating a character. So we talk again. I was I was brought up. I was just a wild kid, and it was drilled into me that I was bad. I was just a bad kid. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid, and so I was, you know. And then they told me when I was I think I got a diagnosis of alcoholism when I was 14 or 15, and that just gave me license alcoholic strength. They drink all day every day, so that was just license. That's what I was. But I acquired these identities that almost killed me, but they had nothing to do with me, did it? It had to do with my behavior and then a, a physical and mental addiction to certain substances. But none of, I mean, and I did that when I was drinking a drug and it was 24 seven for years. And that certainly defined me, but it wasn't me, was it? And in, in one breath, but an ongoing process, I let go of all that. And that was the beginning of trying to figure out what it means to be a human being. But it wasn't until I came across what the Buddha actually taught and applied it that I was, what? Oh, that's right. People want to look at you for a while too, David. <laughs> um, I realized that that was all, that was all the drugs. You know, it, it had it, it. There were certain behaviors that we all acquire because we feel we need to. You know, we need to defend ourselves. It's a harsh world out there. There are certain behaviors that we acquire because we think it makes us more attractive to other people. And then there's just being a human being. You know, and. I, this comes up mostly in doctors. When I go to doctors, and I go to a lot of doctors, they all put me through a, a questioning to try to find out if I'm depressed and suicidal. Every one of them, and I know the I know the pattern. So 
you know, I know what they're saying. I, I look these, everyone, I look them in the eye and I says, my life has ne never been more meaningful or wonderful than it is right here, right now. And they look at me like I'm nuts. But after a few times that I go through that, I think they start believing it. Well, maybe they all think that I'm crazy, that I've lost my mind. How, how could this guy be so busted up and say that? But it's true. And whether people believe me or not, I don't, you know, I don't care about that anymore. I used to, it, but it's true, you know. Thank you for bringing that up. That was an important point. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Thank you, David. Bridget. Hi, Thank you for the season. Um, I probably sound like a broken record, but I think that I'm just you know, kind of like applying the Dharma, applying the Dharma, applying the Dharma, you know, and then there's those places that it's just bumping up against, you know? Yeah. And that's uh, just where I'm at right now. I'm glad I'm there. Yeah. Better than the alternative, but it's um, kind of similarly to David on a different point, you know, and I think that uh, follows the vein of my comments last week. Looking for a, a skillful way to apply the Dhamma to that tension point between mm. acceptance and skillful or wise discernment. You know, because there's, you know, those times where you're just, okay, the cashier was nasty. Well, you know, I hope she feels better later. Um, has nothing to do with me. But then there's the stuff that really feels like it has to do with you. And I, I think, I don't know if I'm wrong, but like some stuff does have to do with you, right? Like there are some things that are, whether it's you in this situation not applying the Dhamma or I don't know, just of course for me it's my kids, you know? Yeah. And I'm trying to find the balance between, you know, accepting and Except places it, where action or change might be required. Are you trying to accept behavior in yourself that you first saw or see as unacceptable to you? Like you might be getting internally angry? No. I feel... And I don't mean to pry. You don't want no, to go no, in deeper. No, no, that's okay. It's useful because it's just something I'm wrestling with and... I think I don't have the, you know, like the wisdom yet to know yeah. the way forward. Um, I can accept my children as they are. I can accept myself as a mother. Uh, fortunately, I've gotten, you know, that far with the Dhamma. Most of the time I see when I'm making a mistake. I see when I'm distracted and, you know, say, okay, you were distracted. You know, you weren't concentrated. You need to calm your mind. Um, but then there's those factors outside of yourself and your children that you can't control. And those things are where I feel the stress. And I'm not finding my way forward just yet with, you know, it, as a mother, you have the power to change those things sometimes. You can change your kids' sometimes. school. You can change well, your kids' home. You can change your kids' things. Like... You can change, are they taking too many classes? Are they, you know, you have choices you have to make on behalf of your children. Yeah. And it's like, you could just say, oh, well, that's the school they go to. You know, I yeah. accept it with its inherent risk or whatever, you know. Or that's, 
you know, that's how they are. But then there's sometimes you have influence over your children. That may be how they are, but if I change something about their environment, they may have a way to be different. Yeah. That's why it's discernment to know that difference. And I feel like I'm at a point where I might be on the verge of developing wise discernment, but I'm like so stressed about it. Uh, may may I suggest that you're trying to be something that you're not quite yet, but you, you can see where you're going. And in that moment, see see where you where you still have approval and acceptance mixed up, because the the broader application of dukkha occurs um, describes this situation where there's a lot going on. And there's so much that you have control of, and so much that you don't, and that's the part that fits in the dukkha, right? And your kids are. Um, My mother didn't want to have a bad middle son, but she did, no matter what she, she tried. And she tried everything she could do. She tried Catholicism. She tried a whack on my hiney once in a while. Uh, she tried putting me in my room. She tried all kinds of stuff. She tried taking me to psychologists, you know, when, when I was in the second or third year of high school. She did everything that she could. But I still was a wild, drunken, and drug addict until I was 26 years old. So, and she was a wonderful mother. She really was. So sometimes, no matter how good of a mother you are or want to be, your kids are still going to be kids. And so there is dukkha. But you are also... Um, you're also skillfully circumspect about your behavior. And so you're able to look at it, right, closely. Sometimes it gets a little, you said tension, you know, it gets a little hot in there when you're looking at yourself and you're looking at your behavior, doesn't it? But try to separate approval from acceptance because you, there, you don't have to approve of anything, and you, but you accept it because it's what's occurring. You're not saying that this is, permanent because you also understand impermanence, right? There could be some difficulties in school that you can't quite address right now. Impermanence might take care of it. You know, so and also trust that your that your kids, while they're not practicing the Dhamma, the Dhamma is still present. Right? There's still there's still an understanding of dukkha there. So even your kids are are prone to birth, sickness, aging, and death. They're prone to getting disappointed when they don't get what they want or being disappointed when something comes to them that they didn't want. Right? In short, they are also five clinging aggregates, poor feeling perceptions, mental fabrications, and their own conscience, consciousness. Again, using myself as an example, somehow I acquired this consciousness of a bad kid or a wild kid. And I really lost my mind and lost my control over my behavior when I was 11 or 12 years old. And I didn't get it back. I didn't begin to get it back for 14 more years. But my mother and father had to live through all of that. 
we had a nice talk when I finally sobered up about it, but they tried their best. They tried everything they could do. When I was 16 years old, they kicked me out of the house. The hardest thing they ever had to do, but they had to do it because they had five other kids to protect and I was tearing up the house. So I understand it. It took me, it took sobriety in a, you know, in a couple of years, but again, they did the best they could. You're doing the best you can, but you're also getting a, a closer look at your underlying um, thinking process too. And again, that can get hot sometimes. So be very gentle with yourself um, and know what you're trying to do is um, it's both ordinary and extraordinary, isn't it? You know, so and give yourself a lot of credit for what you're doing as well. Does that help at all? Yes. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for bringing it up. Cody, good morning. Good morning. There's Cody. Um, thank you for the teaching. And uh, I am just um, incredibly grateful that um, that this space is here and, and that all of you are here. Um, I feel like I learned so much from from the suttas and from the discussion, um, and I'm just extremely, extremely grateful for that. And um, I don't know that I would have a dhamma practice if this, if if all of you weren't here. Um, and that has really um, meant the world to me in these past few months. Um, it's helped me immensely um strength is um it's like there's so many so so many different so much that you could put into that and so many different ways to define strength um but when i when i think about the the strength that the buddha is describing i guess i think about um just the, the strength to be, to have, have integrity to, um, I guess most of the time when I think about strength, I think about the ways that I can manipulate and affect change in the world around me. Um, but that's, I don't think that's what he's discussing here when he's talking about calm, intention, wisdom, and persistence um that's sort of Great. more like the strength to to stand still the strength to remain yourself whatever that means um your true self i guess the sovereign self right um And uh, yeah, so like, it, and and it's I'm I'm always just we I, I get so um, I'm so fascinated by the suttas and so um, overwhelmed by the wisdom or the words or the beauty of it all. But but it is really um, all I have to do is just sit and breathe, and it, the rest of it just unfolds. And it's it's really wonderful to to sit here and listen and, and learn and to gain insight. 
Um, but I'm just, I'm just struck and amazed by, you know, all, all I have to do is sit and, and breathe and <laughs> try to remain equanimous. Um, so thank you. I'm so grateful. I, I am too. And it, 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 it does at times feel so simple that, wait a minute, this can't be right. It can't be this easy. But why shouldn't it be easy? Why shouldn't, I mean, if, if, if you really understand what it means to be a human being, then being a human being is pretty easy. You know, when we were kids, we used to get, we used to get these models, like a model airplane. And some of them only had four pieces and I could put them together pretty easy with just a little glue. And some of them had 150 pieces and I could never get my mind around something that complicated, you know, and, and life can be like that until we realize it's just a breath. You know, what's, what's, what is the most important thing in this moment for every human being? Is it thinking about what's going on or is it breathing? It's breathing. Right? I mean, that's paramount. And then once we can control our breath by being aware of it, now I can apply it to thinking correctly. But we first have to come in contact with our breath, don't we? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And in this moment, calm persists. Yeah, what else is there? So thank you for those words. I feel the same way. You know, I say it here often, I'm so fortunate to be a part of this sangha. I know I sit on the, on the high seat, but so what? You know, I mean, so what? I, I'm just so fortunate. I had a really nice solo practice before Tamara in the building next door asked me to teach a meditation class, but I didn't know what I was missing. And I wouldn't miss this for anything. You know, the Buddha was right. The sangha is the most important part of it. Sangha, the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And we we are, I am so fortunate to be part of a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. You know, we all are. So thank you for saying that. It is important to, to appreciate what really has happened here. And again, I'm sitting on the high seat, but it's the Buddha's words, you know, that are still here. And that's what's working here. Amazing, isn't it? It's astonishing. And it's all so ordinary. Right, Ron? It's, it's simple. Um, yeah. Uh, what this concentration that the whole jhana brings me is is just, you know, in, in the ordinary things in, in life, you know, especially the, 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 the stressful ones, um, that I can... I have now the concentration to, for instance, just to see where I bring in ill will you know, <laughs> in, in the situation. You know, I'm, where before it was just automatic and justified. Yeah, I'd yeah. be sitting there cursing and, and, <laughs> and sweating. And, and now it, like I get into a, a complicated, just a complicated mechanical situation or, or, or logical. And, you know, yeah, I could be you know, cursing out the engineer who, who designed this thing, you know, where I, when I cut up my hands in order to do something. Um, but that lasts, you know, two seconds. And then it's like, why am I even thinking this way? You know, yeah. Can I get the job done? You know, 
yeah, no, but I can't get the job done if I'm if I'm quietly cursing somebody out, you know, yeah. or I'm I'm I'm, I'm anxious that it, I I won't be able to get it done, or yeah, and all these and they're all in essence, you know. Um, forms of ill will that I either put on somebody else or myself. Towards yourself and others. Um, and, you know, they come up, I look at it, okay, don't need to do that. Let's get back to work. Yeah. Um, and and the same thing in, in, in personal situations. My, my family life has always been chaotic and, and stressful and all that. And in the end, it's like, okay, this is here. Um, Am I, you know, am I throwing any ill will at somebody? Yes. Okay. Let it go. Yeah. And move on. Can we do something? Do it. Can we do something? Then don't. Simple as that. Yeah. It is simple. Yeah. As the Buddha said, the Dharma is simple and it's deep. Yeah. And what you described is you reclaimed your own mind. Yeah. Through your own right efforts. Mm -hmm. And again, these are just teachings. It's like any any teaching. You know, if you apply it and you apply it correctly, the end result is pretty guaranteed. What is it too? What did, what did the Buddha promise us that the Dhamma practice will bring? A calm mind that persists no matter what. The fourth foundation of mindfulness. Cody mentioned equanimity. Equanimity. That's what that means, you know. So no matter what situations, ill wills arising in me, the breath is gone. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we don't need to bring it out to everybody. No, and, and blame everybody for the way that I feel. Mm -hmm. and, and there's so much of that. It's even, it seems like it's gotten even a little bit worse about people placing so much value on feelings. You made me feel this mm -hmm. way, so something has to happen to you. Well, you know, yeah. I spent my whole life until about eight minutes ago being angry at everybody and everything. I just was. Nothing was going my way. Yeah. I was, and I was miserable. And I, and that, that persisted through a marriage, you know, a business that that was pretty good at one. But I was miserable even during that, you know, because this wasn't going right. That wasn't going right. Oh, blah, blah, blah. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Great class, everyone. Um, I may not be here on Tuesday, but well, one of our other Dhamma teachers will be teaching the seven factors of awakening, which is the third class in this class. And then we'll be finishing up um, with understanding how to apply concentration to the, to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So this is just a very... Um, instructive sutta, and that's what it's meant to be. The Buddhist memory is holding up these monks as examples for what we're doing. And we're doing it. We're doing this same thing right here. All right, we'll finish with uh, Meta as we always do. John, you said you had a question for us. Uh, yeah, the question was, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Late. Yeah, it's gone. Impermanence. Thanks for almost reminding me.
What was the question? <laughs> let it go, John. Just let it go. The simplicity. Was that was that the question? Basically. You see, I think the question is, who am I? Another <laughs> <laughs> class. Uh, these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, uh, describing um, what an awakened human being, uh, what, what the quality of their mind is, what their behavior is like. The Buddha's words. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. They're humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living being there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, they are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, and having completed the path, they do not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Thank you all for a really wonderful class today. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.